invite your attention this morning to the book of Galatians as we're continuing our study in the book of Galatians this morning. While you're turning to uh, Galatians 6, I feel like I need to say a word about the Supreme Court decision this week in overturning Roe versus Wade. Obviously, that's something that we uh, should celebrate, and I don't want to uh, take from that, but I just need to remind us that that decision is certainly not the end. Uh, you know that there's a great uh, cultural divide over that issue, and as we think about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the trigger laws that that uh, set off in states like Arkansas, we need to remember one of the primary arguments that the pro-choice side has always made against us is that all we cared about was the baby in the womb. We didn't care about the, uh, the mother. We didn't care about the single mom with, with children and her needs. And I can't speak for other churches, but I can speak for us as a church body and say that that is certainly not true about us. We support several uh, crisis pregnancy centers. There have been times when we knew of an individual uh, single mom with a need, we, we took care of that. We've just started a new ministry for uh, single unwed mothers called Embrace Grace. We even have a ministry to women who have had an abortion, women who are, are post-abortive. So they're not the enemy. Uh, we have in our church a pretty healthy culture of, of fostering and adoption. And I say all that to say there's going to be much more to do now, um, especially in our state. And we need to be, we need to be mindful of that. Uh, there is a cultural divide. We need to help speak into that and create a culture of, of life that would make abortion unthinkable. We have won a, a huge battle, but we still live in a culture that does not value life, that does not understand that life is a gift from the Lord. So there's still much to do. Uh, we celebrate there's still much to do. And, and let me just caution you to be careful. Um, there's a lot on social media right now. There's a lot of response from people who claim to believe, be believers that is not very loving. So let's please be very careful um, how we respond, and let's remember that we're to be in an attitude and a spirit of love. And let me mention one other thing, because you may be concerned about this. There have been uh, churches that have had uh, demonstrators infiltrate their services. I need you to know, not just for that reason, but each Sunday as you gather, I need you to know that we have a large uh, security team here. I wouldn't say the number, wouldn't mention names, but we have a very large security team that covers us all over the building, but especially when we're here in the worship center and gathered in the venue. And you can feel very secure um, while you're here. Uh, they know what to do. They're all well-trained, and they go through continual training. I've, I've been to one of their trainings recently, and it's very intensive, and they're continually training, always prepared um, for whatever may come. So you don't need to worry about that. Well, let's do what we're here to do. Galatians chapter 6. Uh, as we walk by the Spirit, there is a definite and, and positive effect on our relationships, especially among believers, especially within the body of Christ. Now, the Galatian believers struggled with unity. Um, there was a lot of division. Most of that was caused, most of that infighting by, caused by the Judaizers and, and Paul. We saw last week, Paul had given very clear instruction on how they were to live by the Spirit. And so now in chapter 6, he's urging them to bring that teaching into their relationships in the church. Uh, the church of all places ought to be where we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit uh, to one another. And let me, let me stop here and say this. I'm so thankful to pastor a church that doesn't have infighting, that doesn't have division, that doesn't have disunity. If, if you're new here, uh, you may not have realized that yet, but we don't have 
a lot of the, the fights and the division that a lot of churches have. And that's not to my credit. Um, that credit would go to uh, pastors before me, like Brother Paul Sanders, who's with us today. I'm so thankful for his leadership through the years to make sure that we were a place of, of unity, that that was a hallmark of Geyer Springs and has been through the years. And that certainly honors the Lord. But we have to realize, too, that because we're human, um, sometimes the old nature can rise up <clears throat> and seek to cause division. So we have to work as a body of Christ to protect uh, that unity that we have. So question this morning is, how do, we, how do we live unified as a body of Christ? How do we go on walking in the Spirit and, and bearing fruit? Paul's reminder to us this morning would be that we need to remember we're on this journey together. There, there's no room for a lone ranger mentality in, in the walk of faith. And part of being together, we're about to see, is that as believers who are walking this journey together, we bear one another's burdens. So look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. He writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if, he, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Well, right off in verse 1, Paul addresses one of the most difficult and dangerous burdens in the life of any believer, and that is falling into sin and, and the consequences that sin brings. <clears throat> I want you to notice the phrase that Paul uses there. He talks about someone being caught in any transgression. Now, he's not talking about being caught in the sense that they're observed committing a sinful act. It's more that they were overtaken by sin. It's a sudden overtaking. They were snared by sin. So this is not a picture of someone who's living in habitual sin, not of someone who uh, has a sinful lifestyle. This is a believer who suddenly finds himself stumbling and falling into sin. What's happened is he's gotten too close to a divine boundary, and because he's gotten close to that boundary, he's, he's crossed the line. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that, that this believer who has stumbled into sin, I'm not suggesting it's, it's not his fault when I say he fell into sin. He's willingly crossed that line, but he's not necessarily a hardened, habitual sinner. He probably didn't start out planning to sin, but he put himself in a situation to flirt with temptation. When I was in about the fifth grade, my mother uh, was a teacher at the same school that I attended. We lived about a mile from the school, and this might shock you, um, but I was allowed to walk home from school by myself every day. Different era, okay? Uh, you students who are listening to me, yes, it was a, a mile, and I would walk home every day. And the only thing my mother told me was, I don't want you taking the shortcut through the woods because I don't want you trying to cross the creek. 
Now, the shortcut through the woods was a great benefit because if I took the shortcut through the woods, I could get home a lot quicker, get my homework done, and go out and play. So I took the shortcut. You know, this is a big creek. This one, a little trickle. This is a big creek. Now, the water is probably three, four feet deep. You know, those rocks get really slippery. And when I got home, I thought, well, she doesn't have to know. And I took my wet clothes, as any enterprising fifth grader would do, and hid them under my bed. <laughs> Evidently, women have a much better sense of smell than men because something got kind of smelly and musty from that creek water in those clothes. Now, what went wrong? What went wrong was not the crossing of the creek. What went wrong was taking the shortcut through the woods. I wish that I understood the words that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14 when he said, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The translation to me as a fifth grade boy would have been, don't even go in the woods. If I had stayed out of the woods, I would have been tempted to, to cross the creek. So what about the brother or sister who gets too close to the boundary, who, who flirts with temptation and, and gets snared and, and gets caught? Do we just leave them there splashing around in sin? Do we say, well, they, they should have known better. They need to figure it out. No, look what Paul says. He says, we are to restore the one caught in sin. Now look closely at verse one. Who does he say should restore the one caught in sin? He says the pastor should, right? Or the deacon should, or the Sunday school teacher should, or the professional counselor. He doesn't say any of that. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him. Well, who's spiritual? It's a person who's walking in the Spirit. It's a person who's led by the Spirit. It's a person who keeps in step with the Spirit. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I may be doing pretty good right now, but how can I go confront someone in sin when I myself have also struggled with sin? Do you know why most recovery ministries are led by former addicts? Unless you're currently struggling with sin, you can help someone who's ensnared because you've been there, because you know what that's like, and because you know the way out. Paul said, you, any of you who are spiritual, any of you who are walking with the Spirit, you restore the one caught in sin, look at the next phrase, in a spirit of gentleness. Listen, if you've been yourself ensnared by sin, if you've had a struggle with sin, you know good and well, you don't need someone to come alongside you to, to judge you or humiliate you or to remind you of your failing. You're well aware of it. The one who's caught in sin needs someone to come alongside her with a gentle and caring spirit. Paul says we're to restore them. The word restore is from the medical vocabulary in ancient Greece. It refers to the word restore means to set a bone, to take a break that has occurred and, and to set that bone and to make it right. And that can be a very painful process, but if the caregiver is exceptionally careful, unnecessary pain is avoided. And the process of restoration is to mend, not cripple. Sometimes the way we approach people who are caught in sin is more crippling than it is helpful. Paul says, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Well, just like with a broken bone, the process of restoration takes time. It's not a one and done deal. We have to come alongside someone and, and walk with them. If they are truly repentant and, and they desire restoration, we need to stick with them. 
You see, a, a fallen Christian needs loving confrontation, but they also need understanding, and, and they need encouragement, and they need a companion to help them carry the load or carry the burden. Who goes on in verse 1 and, and gives a warning to those who are in the process of restoration. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Well, two, two thoughts here on being tempted. One is, you need to be careful when you're working with someone, you need to keep watch over your own spiritual life. You need to be careful when you're working with them that you don't get dragged down into the same sin that fallen believer is in. But I think for most of us, the second thought of watching over yourself would be that we need to be careful that we don't fall into this sin of looking down on the person who's committed the sin and, and judging them or being prideful and think, well, that could never happen to me. We need to be careful we're not judgmental of those who are caught in sin. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And he goes on to say, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and yet not see the log in your own eye? Listen, we have no business judging another believer because we all, at some point in time, are going to fall in our walk with Christ. We're all sinners. So we need to be careful. We need to keep watch over ourselves so that we don't become judgmental or prideful. So, so what do you do when you see someone caught in sin? You don't run from the scene. You don't, you don't stand off to the side feeling smug. You go to their aid, Paul says, with gentleness. The same gentleness and mercy you would want in the same situation. We're all made of the same stuff. And so we need to treat each other with, with gentleness and kindness as we restore those who have fallen. Well, in verse 2, the, the ministry of restoration we see in verse 1 is part of the bigger picture in verse 2. Paul simply says, bear one another's burdens. All Christians have burdens. There is no Christian who doesn't have burdens in, in his or her life. Now, they're different in size. They're, they're different in kind. For some, the burden is the burden of temptation and the consequence of sin that came with that. For others, it could be a physical ailment or a family crisis or a financial crisis or a host of things. But we all have burdens, and God never intended for us to carry those burdens alone. It's not, it's not a lone ranger mentality because we're not totally self-reliant. Listen, self-sufficiency is a myth. And self-sufficiency, that myth has no place in our life as believers. Verse 3, Paul talks about those who might think they're self-sufficient. Look what he says. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What Paul is referring to is a, a, a twisted understanding that leads to self-deception, leads a person to think that he's something, that he is, is self-important. And when you think you're self-important, when it comes to the idea of bearing burdens, when you think you're self-important, it leads to two relationship failures. The first is this. If you think you're something and you think you're important and you think you're above others, you're likely to refuse to help bear another's burdens. Why? Because that task would be beneath you. You're too important for that. You've got too much going on in your life for that. That would be too menial. But also, if you think you're someone, if you think you're something, you certainly would not allow anyone to know about and bear your burden because that would be admitting weakness and need. That's not how the body of Christ is supposed to function. We're supposed to work together. Paul says we're to bear each other's burdens. When we struggle, we need other believers to come alongside and help with the weight of our load. And it's kind of sad that in the church, for certain sins, people are afraid to make their burden known. People are afraid to ask 
for help. You know that people come into the church and, and it's like going to a hospital with a broken bone, a broken arm, a broken leg, and trying to hide it and make sure nobody notices. How ridiculous is that? But we come into the church and because the church is sometimes judgmental, we're afraid to let people know, hey, here's the burden I have. Here's the struggle I have. I need some help with this. Paul says we're to bear one another's burdens. Look back at verse 2. This fulfills the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? We looked at the law of Christ two weeks ago, chapter 5, verse 14, when he said we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. The law of Christ is to love others. And that's why we're willing to step in. That's why we're willing to, to get our hands dirty. That's why we're willing to get in messy situations as a body of Christ because we're going to love others and help them. And by the way, the call here in verse 2 to bear one another's burdens is in the imperative mood in the Greek. What that means is it's not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's a command. If you see a fellow believer in need and you turn and walk away, you're violating, you're disobeying a command of God, and I believe we would call that sin. Well, after verses 1 through 3 and the instruction on how we're to live as the body of Christ, Paul follows that up with our accountability to the Lord in verses 4 and 5. Lest we think we can ignore this instruction, we need to remember that we're accountable to the Lord. And look what he says. He says we're to test our own work. In other words, Paul says we need to be pretty serious about an honest examination of our spiritual walk. And by the way, this, this examination is not about what we think about ourselves and how we think we're doing because we know that the heart is desperately wicked and we can deceive ourselves. It's not about what we think. The examination is about what God thinks. That examination, that testing should be directed by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We should ask him to search our hearts. It's the prayer that David prayed in the 139th Psalm when he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me or test me and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need to ask God to test us and to search us. You know, if we are in the process of examining our own heart, our, our typical course of action as we examine our heart is to look at our neighbor. You can have a very inflated sense of moral superiority when you compare your moral life with the known faults of another Christian brother. We sense maybe the Holy Spirit of God convicting us and we start looking around. We forget about the log in our eye and we start checking the speck in everybody else's eye. No, he says you're to test yourself and you're to recognize you have no reason to boast about what you've done. If there's anything in you that's good, it's only what Christ has done in you. The recognition that if you are, are walking in a way that's pleasing to God, it's only because of the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, test yourselves. Verse 5, why are we going to test ourselves? Now, verse 5 seems to contradict what Paul said in verse 2 about bearing one another's burdens. Now he says, each one will have to bear his own load. Well, it's not a contradiction. He's changed the subject. Here, he's talking about, uh, about accountability. We're to test, we're to examine our work, we're to allow the Holy Spirit to shine the searchlight on us so that we can adjust if necessary. You see, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about another evaluation or another test that is yet to come. When Jesus returns after his second coming, there will be a distinctive judgment for believers. Now, th this judgment is not about your eternal state. That's already been settled. But as a believer, you're going to stand before Christ to give an account of your stewardship of this life. 
From the point of salvation on, you'll give an account of, of how you lived. And what Paul is saying here when he said that you have to, to stand on your own or carry your own burden, what he's saying here is you need to recognize there's not going to be another believer there standing with you or speaking for you. You will stand before the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 3, if you go back and look at 11 through 15, Paul says that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and all of us, every one of us individually, will have our life reviewed. And reward will be received or lost based on what we've done from the moment of salvation to the end of life on this earth. All that's going to matter at that moment is the work you've done and the way you've lived for the Lord. That's why Paul says, test your work. Test your walk. Well, verse 6 kind of sticks out to me. It, it's, it's a bit puzzling. It kind of seems like a disconnected piece of the advice that Paul put down here. Perhaps Paul's like me. If, if, if I don't immediately write down a thought that comes to mind, I, I forget it. Maybe that's why he just suddenly stuck this in here. But no, it, it actually fits the flow. Paul consistently encouraged the churches he founded to provide support for the pastors and teachers in their midst. Why? Because if they didn't, the pastor would go out and have to work to provide for his family. And by the church providing support, they're able to focus on studying and sharing the word and, and shepherding the flock. And supporting those who teach fits in with the need of the body to bear one another's burdens. The, the needs of the pastor and his family could have been a great burden without the support of the church. Now, let me, let me be very clear to you about the support of pastors here at Geyer Springs. Through the leadership and wisdom of our, our finance committee and our personnel committee, our pastors are, are taken care of very, very well. We're able to do that because of your faithful giving to support the ministry of the church. But I'm not showing verse 6 to you to say that you're not doing a good job. Our pastors are, are well taken care of. But I want you to recognize as well, this verse is not just about paying the preacher. The greater message of this verse is about our financial stewardship. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. Everything. And he blesses us and even increases the blessing for us to be a blessing to others. Paul, if you've read his letters, you know he often exhorted believers to give regularly and, and generously and joyfully for special needs and for the ongoing regular work of the ministry. And as a follower of Christ, an element of your faithful service to Christ is giving to his church in order that the work of the ministry is carried on. It's your giving that enables us to proclaim the gospel and further the kingdom outside these walls. Most of you, if you came in the front doors this morning, you probably saw buses parked along the curb. We sent one mission team out Friday. We sent a second mission team out Saturday. We're sending a third mission team out tonight. Why are we able to do that? Why are we able to go to other places and, and share the gospel and further the kingdom? It's because of your faithful giving. And really, the message of verse 6 is pretty simple. If you've received, give. That's what Paul is saying there. If you've been blessed by the ministry, give. Well, the final four verses in this section are great words of encouragement and challenge for us as we, as we think about loving others and bearing one another's burdens. Is there a benefit to fulfilling the law of love, to faithfully walking by the Spirit? And Paul says there certainly is, and he covers here in verses 7 through 10 the law of the harvest. Look at verse 7. There are three very simple interrelated truths in verse 7. Here's the three. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, 
Don't think you can disobey God and, and engage in willful sin and ignore his commands and then hope that you can escape the consequences of that sin by, by praying or by promising that you'll do better. You cannot ignore the commands of God without consequence. You can't sow sin and disobedience and expect blessing and favor from him. Imagine a farmer that goes out one morning and he plants his entire field in cotton seed. And he comes in that evening and he says to his wife, I'm pretty confident we're going to have an abundant harvest of wheat. And she says, well, didn't you plant cotton? He said, yes, I planted cotton, but I'm going to hope and pray for wheat because that would be a better crop. That's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet, just like that farmer is free to plant whatever seed he chooses, we're free to choose our own behavior and actions, but when the planting is done, we can't change the outcome. We can't change the consequences. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be foolish. Don't trick yourself into thinking that you can mock God. You can ignore his commands. You can ignore what, what his word tells you, and then that you can expect different consequences. That's why Paul warns us in verse 8 to choose carefully what we sow. He says, if you sow to the flesh, what is that? It's giving into the sinful nature. It's engaging in the deeds of the flesh that we looked at last week. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption and decay. And the, the idea there of corruption and decay is, is that of a, a putrid corpse in the process of decomposition. Just like those clothes under the bed, it's going to stink. And it's going to become known. Sin always corrupts your relationship with God and with others. And, and that corruption, that decay, is, of course, as you would expect, progressive. When you let sin go unchecked in your life, you will become progressively worse in character. When you let sin go unchecked in your life, you're going to be more and more prone to continue in sin. It's like we said last week, the more you give in to the deeds of the flesh, the more that fleshly desire grows and the more and more you commit the sins of the flesh and the further you go down the pike. The harvest of corruption always grows. But Paul says you can also choose to sow to the Spirit. What is that? It's following his prompting, following his leading. If you're a believer in Christ, the Spirit indwells you. That doesn't mean he fills you, but he indwells you. And if you listen to him and you follow his prompting and you follow his leading, you're going to grow. If you rely on his power to defeat your, sin for your sinful desires, you're going to become more and more of what the Spirit is calling and working in you to be. And Paul says, from the Spirit, we reap eternal life. Now, understand, eternal life is not just a home and the security of a home in heaven when you die. It's a spiritual quality of life here and now. You'll not just benefit one day in the sweet by and by, but you'll benefit here and now when you reap the, or you sow uh, to the Spirit and reap eternal life. What is eternal life now? It's meaning in life, it's purpose in life, it's joy in life, despite the circumstances around us. Eternal life doesn't start in eternity. Eternal life starts for you at the moment of salvation. That's why Paul says in verse 9, don't, don't grow weary. No, you may not see the full benefit and, and the full harvest immediately when you sow to the Spirit. Harvest doesn't come the moment after you sow the seed. It comes later. And it takes some time for what is sown to be ready to be harvested. So Paul says, don't grow weary. Live by the Spirit. Live for Christ by faith. You're going to be rewarded. 
He said it this way to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, neighbor, your labor is not in vain. We're to be tireless of doing good. That, that's what distinguishes us from a selfish world, that we're tireless in doing good. Finally, look at verse 10. He says, listen, you need to look for and be ready for opportunities to do good. In the context of the passage, doing good refers back to the ministry of reconciliation, to bearing one another's burdens, to supporting the work of ministry, to sowing to the spirit, to, to persevering. But, but a broader perspective of looking for opportunities to do good is to recognize that we're to help anyone who, who comes our way who needs attention, who needs help. Anyone. All who we come in contact with who have a need, we need to pay attention to that need. If, if, if a neighbor has a need and God has blessed you with, with abundance, with more than is necessary, then you should share with your neighbor. But notice verse 10 says that we're to do good, especially to the household of faith, to your Christian brothers and sisters. In other words, Paul's saying, if it don't work at home, don't export it. We're to be doing, doing good in the world where we live, but it starts in the household of faith. It starts among us as believers that we're watching out for each other, that we're bearing one another's burdens, that we're willing to step into the messy uh, ministry of restoration. We're doing good, and it starts here at home. You, you start by ministering to fellow believers, then you let your ministry flow from there to, to neighbors and to coworkers and to the rest of the world for the sake of the gospel. That's why he's put us here. That's why you saved us, not just to be at home in heaven with him one day, but to make an impact in the world where he's placed us, to be the salt and light he's called us to be. And it starts here at home that we do these things and we practice these things and it spreads from here so that we're a light in a very dark world. Would you bow with me this morning here in the worship center in the venue as well? Would you just bow and, and we just need to take a moment as we do each week when, when God opens his word to us, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us from the word of God, we always need to stop and ask, what, what is this saying to me? What is God saying to me? How do I need to respond to what I've heard from the word this morning? And I want to say the very first thing you need to think about this morning is whether or not you truly have a relationship with Christ. You, you can't fulfill what it means to live as part of the body of Christ apart from relationship with him. And if you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ, you haven't come to faith in Christ, maybe you don't understand all that that means, pastors are available to help you with that this morning. In just a moment, we will be singing a song of response. I'll be right down here on the front. We have two pastors that are out in the lobby. You can spot them easily. They have a, a tag on that just asks, can I help? We want to help you take the next step. Whatever that is in your relationship with Christ, we want to help you take the next step. The vast majority here this morning are, are believers in Christ. I would say the first thing to all of us out of the scripture this morning is we need to thank God in this church for the unity we have and ask him to protect that unity. And we need to be sure we are, we are people who are walking in unity with the body. We're not causing division and strife. Maybe this morning for you, it's just a, a fresh and a new commitment to the body of Christ, to your part in the body of Christ. 
Paul primarily talked this morning about bearing burdens. Maybe it's bearing the burden with someone who needs restoration. I know it's a scary thing, but we're called to go to a brother or sister who's been ensnared by sin and lovingly confront them and and agree to walk with them through the process of repentance and, and restoration. Maybe this morning it's a fresh commitment to this body that when you see a brother or sister in need, that you'll go to them and see if you can help meet that need. Maybe you don't have what's necessary to meet the need, but maybe you can help connect them to someone who can meet the need. But just that you'd be willing to go to them and say, I I see your need and I'm burdened with you. Probably for all of us this morning, it's, we haven't done this lately, asking the Spirit to test us, to examine us, that we might be prepared when our Lord comes, knowing we'll stand before him. What has the Spirit said? How do you need to respond?